I'm going to be going over the depravity of man. And um, this is a surprisingly fundamental and important doctrine that to understand when understanding the gospel, like, because this really holds the weight of, like, we have the stark contrast of what Brennan was saying with the goodness of God and his righteousness, but then we see our unrighteousness and the standard that um, we miss day in and day out by our own, our own ability. <clears throat> but the first thing that we need to ask is, what is sin? So, um, I found that it was super helpful going into the Greek and Hebrew translation of the word, but I do not speak Greek nor Hebrew. So I went to the Bible Project, and they had some great resources on that. So, and um, the Hebrew word for sin is chata, and the Greek word is hamartia. And both of these words have the meaning of missing the mark. And a good visual is, I mean, a lot of you know that I recently have gotten into archery and bow hunting, and... Um, the whole point of that is accuracy. And so let's picture this a little bit. I'll kind of walk you through a little bit of a story. Uh, and this is purely hypothetical. But uh, let's say I go to the archery range with Tate. And we are, yep, yeah, yeah, back there. Um, so let's say we go to the range and I'm talking it up. On the, on the ride there, I'm like, dude, I watched so much YouTube. I read every single book that an archer could know. I even bought the best bow money could buy. And then we go to the range, and oh no, I think I think I'll be good. I should be good. Um, and then we go to the range. I pull back, draw the bow, shoot, miss the target completely. Now, what does what does that show? No amount of knowledge, like the means of the bow and how much I could read, would change the aspect of how accurately I would hit the target. Now, in the same way with our spiritual walk, that. No amount of knowledge, religious acts, ability in our own can allow us to hit that mark on our own. So, um, but then going from there, we need to know what is the goal? What is the standard that has been set? So um, going into, let's see. So if we look at, Matthew 22, 34 through 40, that's going to show us that Jesus lays out the standard. He says that the law is comprised of essentially two categories that we see. It is categorized by love of God and love of others. And even if we go to Exodus 21 through 17, uh, which is the Ten Commandments, and even in Matthew 5, um, uh, 21 through 30, that is going to show, and that's Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, both of those are two prime examples of um, Old Testament law and also Jesus reiterating the Old Testament law to a little bit more, not modern standards, but almost emphasizing the standards. Um, and now we can really look at both of those two passages in the Bible. We can break down that both of those fall into those categories. And then we can look a little bit internally. So uh, now, we, now we should ask ourselves uh, in like reference to those passages, have we lied? Answer is probably yes. Have we stolen? Probably yes. Have we lusted after somebody on Instagram, in person, physically? Probably yes. Like there, and the list can go on and on and on. Like that is so, like once we actually look at ourselves, it's kind of depressing once we actually uh, 
realize what the standard is and our lack of ability to meet that standard. Because when we break it down, Jesus said that the standard is loving God and loving others, but it's not just that. It's loving God and loving others perfectly, which we have no ability to do on our own. Because James 2.10 says that even if we fail at one point in the law, we are condemned of it all. So even if we lied, well, we're already condemned. If we lusted, we're already condemned. If we have an idol in our life that's above God, we are already condemned of the law. But why is this? And Brennan actually did a great job of prepping this point for me. So in Genesis 3, uh, we see that Adam and Eve committed, like, so essentially we have Adam and Eve that were tempted by Satan that did the one thing that God told them not to do. But then we go into verse, oh, I'll help if I have it the right way, right? So we go into verses 22 and 23 in Genesis. And um, let's see. So verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man be had, has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Uh, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he is taken. And we see a lot of our position here outside of just the law. We see our position with God, how that is broken. We see that um, the law is now written on our hearts. Knowing good and evil, that is why the law is throughout, even though, um, oh, I think, uh, I can't remember the passage, but um, it says that the, even though the law came uh, hundreds of years after Abraham, that law is still written on people's hearts. And this is where that instance happens, where the law is now written on our hearts, that we don't just have to have a physical tablets in order to tell us what is good and bad. Then we also see that our relationship is broken. We do not have any ability to have a relationship with God. And then we also see um, that we have no ability to have eternal life. There's that separation. So... Um, But the crazy thing is with um, sin nature is that often we think that it's just how good or bad you are. Are you a good person in school? Do you pay attention to your teacher? Are you lying? Are you stealing? Are you like all those things? We think of it a very tangible list, but it really runs way deeper than that. And um, if we look at Romans 3, 9 through 12, uh, and then also Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we really see the... Um, the depth of this depravity that's running through our lives. Uh, so starting in verse 9 in Romans 3, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then hopping over to... Uh, Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and, we, and were by nature children of wrath like the, mess, like the rest of mankind. And this shows that like a very good spiritual biography on what our lives are apart from God and 
it, it's not just our actions. It's our mind. It's our body. It's our desires. It is our will. And ultimately, it's our soul where that's going to end, like, be for the rest of eternity. Um, and so I, I like to think of uh, my life where I, if you asked me in high school, I would have said, oh, yeah, I was, I was saved when I was a kid. Um, but even in just recent uh, like introspection, I realized that in high school, I kind of sucked, honestly. Like, it was rough. So um, because I was chasing girls, I was trying to find satisfaction through pornography, I was empty, I was joyless, I was searching for so many things that could fulfill that that was outside of God. And even though I was going to church, I was plugging in with the youth group, I was uh, coming here, I was going over to uh, Grace Life Church, where I was at at the time. But you could see by my life, I was not loving God. And even though I was going to church, even though I was doing those things, that like that's not going to atone for my sins. Like that is missing the mark in our uh, in the illustration. Like if I were to draw that bow back and shoot, it would miss the target entirely. So, but. That's not the only thing. I love how, I think, uh, I can't remember who it is. If I think it's somebody here at First Family. Uh, but in scripture, the but God is always a great thing. And in this, but God is also an amazing and hopeful thing in our story. So uh, Jeff Dodge has this one, uh, it's the, um, oh, he calls it the parable of the merciful king. This is my, by far, probably one of my favorite stories about um, just our position and stuff. So uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna play this out for you. I'm gonna summarize it a little bit because it's very long, um, but just walk with me through this, just picture this. So there's this king and this, uh, this king is the most powerful and mighty in all of the land, but he's also the most merciful and kind. And we have this kingdom that he rules that is ruled by peace and harmony, but, um, Oh, hold on. I'm blanking a little bit. Um, but one day, there was a thief. And the servant came into the throne room and said to the king, there's a thief in your kingdom. And you could tell all the people that were in the kingdom were distraught. There's not been a thief in so long. Harmony has been the standard. That has been the normal. So the thief said that, or the king said that when the thief is found, 10 lashes, 10 lashes will be the punishment. So the servant said, okay, and the king's people went out into the kingdom to try and find the thief. A week had passed, the thief had not been found. So uh, the servant went back into the king's throne room and told the king, we have not found the thief yet. And the king said that 25 lashes is now the punishment for the thief when he is found. And you could start to tell, everyone was getting a little on edge, everyone was like, oh my gosh, 25 lashes, what the heck, that's a lot. Um, but the servant and the king's people went out into the kingdom to try and find the thief. Yet again, a whole lot of time has passed, and the servant comes back, says, we still have not found the thief. Now you could tell the king's justice needed to be served on this thief, and he said 50 lashes will be administered to the thief. Now you could tell even the people were like, king, can you even handle this? Like, this is a, this is a large level of punishment. This is beyond anything that anybody could handle. And then a short while after, the servant came into the throne room, his head sunk, his face pale, and said, King, we have found the thief. 
And the crowd in the throne room parted, and looking down, there was a frail, small woman. It was the king's mother. Now the king, now the people in the crowd are starting to wonder, what is the king going to do? Is he going to display his power and might and his justice, or is he going to serve mercy and love towards, towards his mother? So the king says, bring the whipping post. And everybody is astonished at this. So he brings the whipping post. His mother is at the ready. The whipmaster winds back, and the king says, wait. He takes off his crown. He takes off his robe, and he steps down from his throne and wraps himself around his mother and says, continue. This is exactly what God does to us. We don't deserve anything. The punishment is so severe and just for what our sins are and how deep that depravity runs. But God in his mercy, in a tandem with his justice, bring, sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. But he didn't just die. He fulfilled the law perfectly that we never could. Because we see in Genesis that though sin came through, um, came through one man, the salvation uh, came through one man as well who was able to fully fulfill the law and die for our sins and raise again so we might have true life. So um, hopefully this, uh, this is encouraging uh, to the believer that we have been saved from so much. And hopefully to the unbeliever, this will help you understand our position uh, under a holy God. Uh, and I'll leave you with this, this quote from Thomas Watson that uh, Stan sent me yesterday. And it is, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So I hope that is our posture uh, now going forward.